April 25th, 2021. Unstoppable. Singing in the dark. When my wife and I were newlyweds, we were taken under the wing of a couple named Art and June Carlson, and uh, their mentoring and friendship and companionship was nothing short of a gift of God to us. Uh, it coincided that we were newlyweds. We were just starting out in ministry, in full-time ministry. They happened to be in their final two years at that point of uh, active ministry before retiring. And that coinciding of those stages of ministry and life were a sheer gift. And they always seemed to have just the right word of counsel and advice for us just when we needed it most. Art, in particular, the husband, had a real gift and a real knack for putting a lot of truth in a sentence. He could say more in a sentence than I can say in a half an hour. And he had this way of making words stick and making them memorable in a way that we still remember to this day. He, he passed away about a year and a half ago, and he had asked me in advance to be one of the people who shared, and I knew right away what I was going to share. I was going to share all these little sayings and, and these little nuggets of wisdom that he had taught me. And it turned out pretty much everybody who shared at his funeral shared their list of all these little memorable quotes that he had shared with us. Uh, about two years ago, what turned out to be one of the last times I got to speak with him, he knew that the end was coming. Uh, he knew that medically he had a lot going on, that things were not looking good. And uh, he was detailing for me what was going on and, and how challenging life was at that point and that he knew that the end was coming. And, and I said, oh man, I'm so sorry to hear all that. And he said, hey, listen, the Lord never said it would be easy, but you know what he did promise? That he would be with us. The Lord never said it would be easy, but he did promise that he would be with us. And when we look at the life of the early church, we see that over and over again, that life was not easy for the early church. Life was not easy. Following Jesus was not a, a walk in the park for the early Christians. But the Lord was clearly with them. In fact, we're calling this series, we're in the third of four weeks of a series called Unstoppable. And the reason why we're calling our study of the book of Acts Unstoppable is because the very last word in the book of Acts is a word that's translated unhindered. Uh, unimpeded, unobstructed, unstoppable, that despite the challenges that they faced, despite the persecution that they faced, yet somehow the word was unstoppable, yet somehow they were unhindered in the work that they did. And so we're calling this series Unstoppable as a way of talking about how despite the challenges that were going on around, despite the obstacles, yet there was no stopping what God was doing. And this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, and in particular a time when we see some of the re very real challenges that the early Christians were facing in the book of Acts, but also a time-tested method that we see in this passage for how some of the early Christians and through Christians of all generations have faced suffering and challenges of all kinds. So we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. Let me just pray for us as we jump in. God, we thank you again for your word and for the way that you speak to us through it. We pray that your spirit would be in this place and that we would hear your voice speaking to us as we open up your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning at verse 16, it says, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling, and she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, and finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer, commanded, uh, the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet, their feet with stocks. Uh, this is an abrupt change. Poor Paul and Silas are just making their way off to go to the place to pray. They're getting dogged by this woman who's demon-possessed, who's kind of heckling them and harassing them as they go through their day. And finally, it even says in the text that Paul got so irritated by the whole thing, he just turns and says, all right, enough, and he casts out the demon. This isn't even a plan. This is not even a premeditated miracle. This just kind of pops out of him. You'd think this would be an exciting time, that everybody would be excited about this, the chance to see it. But instead, it turns out there are people who are profiting from this poor woman, from her suffering and from her agony. And in response to Paul and Silas casting out this demon, they realize they've lost their source of income. They've lost their moneymaker. And so they seize Paul and Silas. They have them thrown in jail. They have them dragged before the authorities. And they're now thrown in jail after being beaten and flogged. And now at the end of the scene, they're in stocks. Their feet are in stocks, which is, you know, you've seen this at colonial times, things where your, your feet are put in stocks, which is a way of ensuring that you're not going to sleep that night. You're going to be uncomfortable. Your legs are going to cramp up. There's no sleeping that night. It just, it's it's like a, almost like a form of torture at this point. And it seems abrupt. It seems unusual that this would happen so the way it does for Paul and Silas, but it's actually not unusual at all. And I want to show you three reasons why this isn't unusual. The first is that Jesus said his followers would face persecution. Jesus never said life would be easy. And in fact, he said, if you follow me, it's going to get harder. He said, if the world hates you, remember that they hated me first. He said, if the world mistreats you, rejoice and be glad because they mistreated the prophets before me and they mistreated me. So if they're mistreating you, that's a badge of honor. Rejoice and be glad. And throughout history, it has often been the case that for Christians, that following Jesus often comes along as paired with persecution and suffering. And Jesus did not mince words. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't tell us it would be any other way. Nobody can claim that Jesus pulled a bait and switch on him because Jesus warned us in advance, if you follow me, there will be suffering. Now, as an aside, what we experience in the United States is not really persecution. We experience problems. Not every problem is persecution. What, when you compare what we experience in the United States to what people around the world experience on a daily and weekly basis, it's not persecution. You may have awkward conversations with coworkers. You may have family members who don't invite you over as much as they used to. You may have some of those awkward exchanges, neighbors that give you a funny look when you're leaving the house on a Sunday morning to go to church. But that's not persecution. That's just awkwardness of life. Second thing here I want to show is that 70 million Christians total have been martyred in the last 2,000 years. 70 million Christians. This is from Gordon Conwell Seminary. They, they estimate that 70 million Christians have been martyred since the time of Christ. So that the standard Christian experience in most places, in most times, in most generations is not to have a place of prestige, not to have a place of, of luxury, or of access, but to be victims and victimized by the powers and principalities of the time. And the third thing is that Christians actually are the most persecuted religious group in the world today. One in eight Christians in the world are persecuted for their faith today. Every day, five Christians are arrested. Every day, uh, actually, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested. Five are abducted every day in the world. Hindus are persecuted. Muslims are persecuted. Jews are persecuted everywhere in the world. Yes, absolutely. But actually, statistically speaking, the most persecuted religious group in the world today is Christians. And there are places in the, world where, in the world where it's almost like Christians are being exterminated. Some of the countries, you can go online and find some of the lists of the most hostile countries in the world where, for, for Christianity, where Christians are almost being stamped out. 
And you'd think that because of that, with 70 million of us being martyred over the last 2,000 years, with 10, with, with 10 million, sorry, a million of us being uh, martyred over the last decade, a million Christian martyrs over the last decade, you'd think that Christianity would be in decline. One person who studies this and who keeps an, an inventory and a log of, of uh, tracking Christian martyrdom and per- Christian persecution currently and throughout history says, it's not a story of being demoralized. It's not a story of Christianity being snuffed out. In these places where, where the, 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 the government and the, the people placed there are most hostile to Christianity, we don't see Christianity struggling there. We see Christianity thriving there. He says it's not a, a situation of Christianity being snuffed out. It's a situation of resilience. And if you were to describe to somebody that there's this group of people that have been around for 2,000 years, they're the most persecuted group right now of their kind, 70 million of them have been martyred over the last 2,000 years, you'd think that this would be a very solemn group. They might be really devout, they might be really serious, they might really care deeply about what they believe, but you'd probably think they're probably kind of solemn, they're kind of sober, they're kind of serious, kind of in a perpetual state of mourning, uh, even a sense of anticipatory mourning about all this grief that has been inflicted on them. But that's not actually what we see. The Lord never promised it would be easy, but he did promise that he would be with us. And this all leads up to the, very, the one verse I wanted to read you through this morning. The, the single most important verse, I think, for us in this passage that I, I hope was be meaning for you, to, for you today. All of this leads to the single moment for Paul and Silas, where it says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas, just picture the scene. They're in this dark, damp prison, not how they had all expected this day to be going. They're locked up in stocks at the center of the prison. They have no idea what the rest of the night or the next day is going to hold. They're sore from being beaten and flogged. They're surrounded by criminals. And there in the darkness of the the prison cell, their feet in stocks, what do they do? They sing? They sing? It seems so random. It seems so strange. It seems so out of place that they're singing here in the dark in the middle of their suffering. A friend of mine a couple years ago had uh, one of those days where he had fever and chills and body aches and he was in bed trying to get over it and he had a preschool daughter at the time who opened up the bedroom door, peeked in, said, how you doing, daddy? He said, oh, I'm not feeling so good. I'll get better in a couple days, but I'm not feeling so good right now. And she said, Daddy, can I pray for you? He said, oh, sweetie, sure, that'd be great. Come on in. And so she came in and she walked up next to the bed and she, she put a hand up on him and she bowed her head and she said, happy birthday to you. <laughs> but you know, she's on to something because some of our best prayers are songs. Some of the best prayers we've ever prayed our songs. One of the first things that people notice when they become a Christian or start coming to church, for some of us who've been going to church for a long time or have grown up in church, we hardly notice how much we sing. But when someone first starts coming to church, they walk in like, man, there's, they, people sure like to sing a lot. What is all this? Are we supposed to sing along? Are we supposed to stand or sit? What are we supposed to do here? For those of us, we're almost inoculated against it, those of us who've been Christians for a long time. But for new believers, they walk in and it's a little bit disarming. It's a little bit disorienting to see all of the singing, partly because it used to be the case that there were much more, many more opportunities throughout our culture for people to gather together and sing in unison. But now in 2021, when people gather together and there's music happening, it's happening on the stage and everybody else is just listening to it. We don't often gather together to sing together. The church is one of the only places where this happens anymore. And so it's a disorienting thing when someone becomes a believer and they come in contact with Christians and they say, why do these people sing so much? Why do they sing so much? 
When Christians face hardships, we sing in the dark. When Christians are, are facing brutality, we don't go silent, we sing. When, face, when Christians face problems, we don't sulk, we sing. One of the greatest weapons we have in facing discouragement, a time-tested method for facing discouragement and challenges, is our ability to sing in the dark. Believers and non-believers alike have found that music has incredible therapeutic benefits and educational benefits and benefits for our emotional well-being. Uh, if you think about stress as being like a kid who runs into the house and turns on every light switch, some of you have kids like that at home, uh, stress kind of runs into your life and runs into your body and turns on every switch, turns on all the lights so that everything, it's shining like a Christmas tree in, uh, in Rockefeller, Rockefeller Park. And music has the opposite effect of that. If stress lights everything up, if stress turns on every switch, music comes into your body, comes into your life, and gradually fades everything down. And gradually everything gets calm and soothed down. They found over and over again that music has a stress-relieving effect on people. They found that for people who are recovering from surgery, that playing music actually has a calming effect on their heart, pace, their, their, their heart rhythm, soothing their heart pace, r- reducing their blood pressure, even reducing how fast they're breathing, just has this calming effect to make music, no matter how skilled or unskilled you are. They found in the lives of senior adults that if they are listening to music regularly or making music, it increases how they perceive their quality of life. That music has this profound effect in increasing how, how much we enjoy our lives. Seniors among us, Turn up the radio, crank it up. It's good for you and it's good for your outlook on life. They've even found at the University of Toronto across the border in Mississauga that they did a study with six-year-olds and they gave one group of six-year-olds music lessons for a period of time and they compared them to six-year-olds who didn't get music lessons. And the six-year-olds who got music lessons had a three-point jump in IQ during that time. Thank God for music teachers. I am an unabashed, uh, unapologetic uh, advocate of music education. Thank God for our music teachers. You make our lives richer. You make us kinder and smarter, and you fill our lives with so much meaning. In the course of the past year, we've seen how much music and the arts matter in our lives. Thank God for all of you music teachers. Be encouraged. I know it's been an incredibly difficult and an incredibly awkward year for all of our music teachers, but you, you enrich our lives. We thank God for you. But Christians in particular have found that singing, beyond all those therapeutic and beneficial and psychological benefits, has a spiritual benefit for us. Ajith Fernando, a a pastor in Sri Lanka, says that music helps the truth to translate from our head to our heart. He says that music, singing, is a time-tested strategy for facing challenges and facing suffering in our life. I want to share with you a few examples of people who've done this. First is John and Charles Wesley. Back in the 1700s, John and Charles Wesley launched a movement of renewal and revival and the scriptural way of salvation that today has 75 million followers in 130 different countries. An absolutely incredible movement of the Spirit of God then and now, all these years later. How did they do that? How do you start just a movement like that? Well, they did a lot of things right. They had an incredible plan, probably the best plan we've ever seen for discipleship after the life of Jesus. And, but, but those who studied the Wesleys know that they saw the, the value and the power of music. John Wesley preached 40,000 sermons in his lifetime, but his brother Charles wrote 6,500 hymns, songs during his lifetime. You probably never have heard one of John's sermons, but you probably have sung one of Charles' songs. Back, back in Advent during December, we sang Hark the Herald Angels Sings, which, which is a Charles Wesley hymn, because that's the power of music. In fact, John, the preacher of the two, during his lifetime, Handel's Messiah, the, this epic musical piece. You may not know Handel's Messiah, but you know the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah. That's from Handel's Messiah. 
that came out during John Wesley's lifetime. And there was a performance at a church nearby to him during his lifetime. So he went over to hear this performance. And in his journal at the end of the night, he wrote, he's pretty sure that nobody who had been there that night in that church had ever been so moved by a sermon as they were by that song. That's the power of music. The Wesleys knew the power of music. The second group I want to share with you is Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his crew who are defying the Nazis. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a pastor and theologian in Nazi Germany during World War II. And he had opportunities to come to the States and to do ministry and to teach here in the States. But he chose to stay in Nazi Germany and defy Hitler and the Nazis because he thought it was the right thing to do. And when you think about what kind of resolve and nerve it takes to face down a group like the Nazis, when you think about the kind of strength of character and the strength of will it takes to, fight down, to face down a group like that, where does that come from? Well, I think Bonhoeffer would say among the reasons is music. He said in the home life, in our home life, that it's important to have music regularly in our homes because as he said, music will bring your confusion to clarity and purify your character and outlook and in the midst of worries and sadness will sustain in you joy. Bonhoeffer was a brilliant scholar. He had a PhD and could have talked anybody in circles, but yet he didn't say we need more sermons in church. He said we need to sing in church, that singing is one of the most important things we do when we gather together in church. He said when we sing together, it's more of a spiritual matter than a musical matter. He said when we sing the same words together, we get to pray the same prayer at the very same time, and there's a spiritual power that's unleashed in there. Bonhoeffer ended up laying down his life in a Nazi concentration camp shortly before it was liberated uh, out of his commitment to God, and Bonhoeffer knew the power of music. Third group I want to share with you is the Salvation Army. Uh, You may know the Salvation Army for their red kettles and their thrift stores uh, and their soup kitchens and their food pantries. What you may or may not know is that the Salvation Army is a sister denomination to us. They are a Christian denomination, and everything that they do is motivated by a desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost world. Every, every cup of water, every soup, uh, bowl of soup that they give out, every loaf of bread is motivated from this deep place to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share the love of Christ with the lost and hurting world. And they do that. That's where it's motivated, from a, from a gospel motivation. And what you may also not know about the Salvation Army is not only did they run towards problems when things like 9-11 happened, they were there within the hour helping out at Ground Zero. When, when catastrophes happen, they're there. When hurricanes strike and earthquakes happen, they run towards the problem. But something else about them that's unique is that they sing where they go. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said, the world has not yet seen what might be done by the singing of people whose hearts were full of the Spirit of God. And they are as deeply committed as they are to serving the least and the lost, to setting up food pantries and food soup kitchens and feeding those who are in need. They are just as committed to, to singing wherever they go the songs of salvation. The, Salv- the Salvation Army knows the power of music. Last group I want to share with you. Some of the most important music that has ever come out of our continent was not written in conservatories or universities or apartments or offices. Some of the most important music in our nation's history was sung in fields by slaves. Songs like Go Down Moses and Swing Low Sweet Chariot and Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. He's got the whole world in his hand and so many others. We're not written on sheet music at first, but we're sung and passed from one to another through this oral tradition as a way of testifying in their faith that God would get them through, of persevering with one another, of of both expressing their resilience and of encouraging one another's resilience. And is it any wonder 
that some of the most important music in our nation's history came out of such a dark time. Even Jesus, in Mark chapter 14, on the night he was betrayed, the last thing he did before walking off in Mark 14 to facing his betrayer, was he said that Mark 14 says that he sang a hymn with his disciples and then went off to face Judas. We don't sing to deny our troubles. We don't sing to bury our head in the ground. We don't sing as a a diversion. Our singing is both a sign of our resilience and how we are resilient. It has never been enough for Christians that we study what we believe, that we talk about what we believe, that we read books about it, we talk about it, we gather together and memorize it. We've always had to sing it. One of the trial in the trials and struggles of our daily life, one of the best weapons we have against discouragement and suffering is our ability to sing in the dark. We strike a death blow against the powers of darkness when we sing in the dark. We win a battle in the spiritual war that is waging around us when we raise up holy hands and, and singing a song to the Lord. Jesus sang on the night he was betrayed. Paul and Silas sang in their prison. The Wesleys sang while changing the world for Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer sang while defying the Nazis. The Salvation Army sings while serving the poor victims of the African slave trade a whole new genre of music with their singing. When we have problems, we don't sulk. We sing. When we face persecution, we don't go silent. We sing. When the lights go out, Christians sing in the dark. And I just want to invite you to join in the song with us. It's one of the most very important things that we do as believers, that we lift up our voices in song. Before Paul and Silas were done, it says in verse 26, suddenly... There was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Singing doesn't always have such dramatic results like that. (laughs) But sometimes it does. And I just want to give you a couple practical ways you can get in on the song today. First is this, even if you're not a believer yet, Try it. Some of you, you know, you're, you're here because of a family member, you're seeking, you're trying to figure this out. One of my firm foundational beliefs about the teachings of Jesus is that we don't obey Jesus' teachings just because it's right. Uh, just, just because he says so. We obey him because he's right. And if you're not sure, if you believe in Jesus, if you're seeking, you're not sure where you are with God, if you believe all this stuff, uh, I think this is a great chance for you just to try it. And see if it makes a difference. And if this makes a difference in your life, then maybe come back and find out a little bit more about this Jesus guy and the difference he can make in your life. Uh, If for nothing else, for the the emotional and psychological benefits for you, try this. Buy a harmonica. uh, Buy a, a ukulele. Pull that guitar out of your closet. Sit down and play on the piano. Turn up the radio. Infuse some music in your life. Even if you're not a believer, try it. Second, if you usually don't sing in church, hum along. I know that not everybody among us is a musician. I know not everybody here loves to sing. For some of you, you'd be happy if we just cut the music in half. Others of you, you'd love it if we doubled it. But for those of you who don't normally sing, can I just encourage you to, if maybe for you it's a stretch just to tap your toe today or to hum along or to this week to, to go out of your way to infuse some more music into your life and see if that doesn't just make a difference for you. For the third group of you, if you love singing your prayers, sing a little louder. Some of you, you don't need this encouragement. You're, you're, you're like, Steve, shut up and sit down. It's time to, we want to sing now. But listen, I want to encourage you this week. If singing is one of your love languages with God, blow the roof off. 
this, both this morning and, and throughout your week, find ways to, to keep music going. Keep music as part of your life. When you're driving around, when you're on your way to work, when you're, when you're dropping the kids off at school, have the radio on. Have a song of praise on your lips throughout your week and just see the difference that might make. When Tammy and I were spending a lot of our time with Art and June Carlson and seeking their wisdom, our first month uh, pastoring a church on the east side of Buffalo was probably the hardest week of hardest month of ministry I've ever had in my life. Uh, there's a lot of ways I could describe that time to you, uh, but maybe one story will suffice. The very first Sunday that I was past, preaching as the pastor of that church, somebody heckled me during my sermon. Uh, now, there, listen, there are traditions in their churches where there's like call and response and you, know, you say amen and, and different things to keep encouraging the pastor. This wasn't that. I got heckled during my very first sermon as the pastor of this church. Some of you are like, I didn't know we could do that. Uh, get any ideas just yet. That wasn't, that wasn't even the worst thing that happened that month. We just had such a grueling month of trying to, to lead these people and serve with them. And finally, after the, probably the hardest night I hope that I ever have as a pastor, uh, we were at the end of our rope. And we called up Art and June with the intention of throwing in the towel. And we said, it's not working. There's no way. There's no way to redeem this. this is, we're, we're in a mismatch. I don't see how we fix this. And they said, sounds like you need some ice cream. Come on over. And so we went over to their house in Williamsville. I'm one of those perfect June nights. You know, those June nights are coming when it's comfortable outside and you can sit outside in shorts and a t-shirt and be comfortable. And we went out on their back patio and their two dogs were there, a little Shih Tzu and a Chow Chow. You know what the Chow Chow is? It's this big fluffy dog with a blue tongue. If you've never seen a dog with a blue tongue, it's startling every time you see it. And so we're out there on their back patio with their little dog and their chow chow with a blue tongue and four bowls of ice cream and four spoons. And we were just sharing it all. What have we done? We've made a mistake. What are we doing here? Um, and they shared a lot of advice and just listened and let us share and dump. And then finally, sometime into the conversation, I'll never forget, June interrupted me and she said, you know what you need to do? You need to sing. She described to us how in so many difficult times of life, times when she was stressed and, and anxious and worried, she would intentionally have a song of praise on her lips. She would have a song in her heart or she'd be playing music, uh, worship music in her, in her home. And she was just telling us how that has made such a profound difference in her life, just to have a song. You need to sing, she said. So we didn't quit. We tried singing and said, music has always been a part of my life. I've always been playing music and making music and singing. I'm one of those people who loves to sing. I didn't think it was going to work, but we didn't quit. And we tried singing. And all I can tell you is it made all the difference. It didn't throw the prison doors open, but I can tell you that the person who heckled me that Sunday became a very close friend and one of the most loyal allies I've ever had in ministry. And it was a miracle to see. And when I think back on our years with that congregation, I honestly don't remember so much the sermons I preached or the Bible studies that we had. I remember the singing and all the difference it made. The team this morning thought that it was appropriate, that it didn't feel right to just finish the message, sing one song and go on our way, that we need to have a little time to linger, to simmer in this this morning. So we're going to have a little bit of an extended time to sing after the message. I just want to have you be aware of that, that we're, we're going to enter into a little bit of an extended time to sing. But 
The Lord never said it would be easy, but he said he would be with us. So we don't quit. We don't throw in the towel. We sing in the dark. And I just want to invite you to join in with the song. Lord, I thank you for this group and for the joyful music that that happens in this place. And for those who are carrying heavy burdens, I pray that you would would join in this song with us. Spirit of God, that you would be here in this place. That our singing would be a means of grace, a two-way, a bridge for two-way traffic where we could meet with you and you could meet with us. We join our voices to the voices of all those who've gone before us and the Christians all around the world who are lifting their voices to you today. We pray this in the matchless name of Christ our Lord. Amen.